Uh, for those of you who have not been here in some weeks or, or you've been gone this summer, this is a catch-up sermon of all catch-up sermons for you. This is going to see us cover the entire book of Ephesians in one sermon um, with very few bathroom breaks. And so we're going to cover the book of Ephesians. You know, one of the things I love the most about uh, verse-by-verse preaching is that it brings us into contact with verses we would otherwise skip. It, it, it makes us um, come into contact, close contact with verses that are just uncomfortable. And so we, we handle a variety of subjects, we handle a variety of topics as we come across them. And so one of the more frequent questions, unfortunately, asked of me is, hey, you know, uh, you're not going to talk about this in a sermon, are you? I was like, well, is it in, in the book we're studying? And they'll say, well, yeah, it is. And I say, well, yeah, we're probably going to talk about it. And you know, I've, I've been accused of, of picking out particular things that are sins in other people's lives. Sometimes I feel like God is, is picking on me, picking out sins that are particular in my life. And we come across it in the book of Ephesians or elsewhere. I'm like, really, God? Really? Do I have to talk about that in front of everybody? And he's just like, yeah, it's in there, isn't it? That was your mantra, wasn't it? It's like, I need a new mantra. We're going to do the easy verses. But today, as we seek to go over the book of Ephesians, we recognize that this is a letter that they would likely have read in one sitting. And so someone would come in, they deliver the letter, and they would read it to all those gathered together. And then they would go back through and, and take it a bit at a time. And so we're coming at it a little bit in a different way, in a different focus than they would. But I want us to understand that the book of Ephesians is, is only understood from the purview of salvation. Like if, if you miss the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus Christ, then you're going to miss everything to do with the book of Ephesians. Maybe you're not a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, and you read through Ephesians 5, and, and so you tried working some of those things in your home life, thinking that they would correct some stuff for you. If you're not a believer in faith in Jesus Christ, these things will not work for you. We don't read the Bible because it helps us to, to feel better. We read the Bible because we recognize it is life-saving, life-transforming. And at the center of the book of Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, is a message of salvation. And so that's the, that's the framework, that's the grid work we're going to read this through today, recognizing that Paul writes it with this salvation intent. But it's salvation in a particular form. It's a Trinitarian form of salvation. It's salvation where we see the movement of the Father, the action of the Son, and the sealing of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to see that today. And then from that framework, from that, that, that mindset, we're going to look at, at, at relationships. We're going to look at what it calls upon us to reflect. And we're going to look and see what response, if any, is this calling us to, okay? Um, if you have uh, something to write on, we're going to be moving quickly. And so you might want to just write some of this stuff down. Uh, you can come back to it later, or you can consider this a large-scale Bible drill. Uh, luckily, we'll be in the book of Ephesians the entire time, and so you should be pretty good once you're in there. There are only six chapters, not very much room to get lost. Flip over to the last chapter, chapter 6, verse 17. Chapter 6 and verse 17. Now, Paul has been moving through in chapter 6, lining out the various pieces of armor that the Christians should wear. He says, pray to God, be strengthened, be strong, stand strong in the Lord, put on this armor, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, shoes shod for the gospel of peace. And so he's been moving through this thing, and then he comes in chapter 6 and verse 17, and he says, take on the helmet of salvation. So we recognize that we place this helmet on, and from the safety and security of the helmet of salvation, we see everything. But we see things a little bit differently, right? I mean, it's, it's shaping and shading what we see is reality. To go through the life without this helmet of salvation is to go through life without this covering of God. And so he gives to us this helmet of salvation. And so today what I'm going to ask you is that you would appropriate for yourself that thing which is yours by virtue of Jesus' shed blood. Place on for yourself the helmet of salvation. We recognize that as we look at relationships, elements of response, and elements of reflection, that we do so not through just what works for me, what can I appropriate for my family, but we do so from the vantage point, the very real vantage point of salvation. Place on this helmet of salvation, and then as we look at each one of these areas, the landscape has changed. Suddenly our family lives become possible. Suddenly going to church with people we don't really care for becomes possible. Suddenly we're called into this deep understanding that we have to meditate over, on some of these things. And, and the meditation on these things, the truth of Scripture, calls us 
to action. Amen? Amen. Flip back to chapter 1. One of the things you observe as you read through chapter 1, if you're to read through 1, 1 through 113, is the whole trinity is involved in salvation. The triune God was involved in you coming to know him. This wasn't something that you just dutifully put your mind to and said, that's it, I'm going to muster through this, I'm going to get saved. No, the triune God in all his wisdom was there, present, calling you to salvation in his name. And we, we look at that, we veer out from that, from this helmet of salvation. Look back at 1-4. The statement that should cause not pride in us, but a tremendous sense of thankfulness, of the graciousness of God. Look what he says. Even as he chose us in him, in Jesus, before the foundation of the world. Recognize that God chose you before he had anything created. He recognized humanity would rebel and walk against him. And in the the providence of God, God being outside of time, God peered down and he chose you. It's a tremendous sense of, of just awe. Of just awe. That God would look down, and and from the annals of eternity past, he would choose us. And look what he chose us to be. He chose us to be in Jesus. The safety and security of the believer rests not in some bold confession that they've made, but their placement in Jesus Christ. Jesus stands at the center of all moves of salvation. We recognize that in eternity past, God chose us in Jesus for the express purpose that we might be holy and blameless before him him the reason the christian is able to stand before a holy god as holy and blameless has very little to do with them and a whole lot to do with jesus god has placed you firmly and securely in the savior's embrace and he positions you in front of him and as he apprises your state he says that you are holy and he says that you are blameless look what he did in verse five he predestined us For adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purposes of his will. So we still see the Father moving, and now he's moving, and he wants to to show us as, as sons. You have been adopted. You have been embraced. You have been welcomed into a new family. And one of the things we know about about first century Roman adoption is that there is no ability to rescind an adoption. And so if someone was adopted into a family, there was no ability to do away with that adoption. So what he's saying is there's a permanency to what God has done for you through Jesus Christ. There's a permanency to it. Again, it does not rest on the exclusivity of the believer's endeavor to demonstrate themselves with spiritual soundness, spiritual acts of physicality. What he's talking about is this gracious movement of God the Father through the Son. He's predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And for that, he is to be praised and he is to be glorified. Verse 7, we see the son come in. Step in center sage. What began with the father, father has moved through the agency of the son. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. What an outstanding statement. Some of us spend so much time in our lives beating ourselves up for our formal way of existence, our formal way of life. I was an adulterer. I was a gambler. I was a glutton. I struggled with with same-sex attraction. I I, I struggled with with just lying. I was a cheat. I was prideful. I was boastful. People just generally hated me. People drove the long way around to not pass by my house, not to pass me at the grocery store. Like some of us, this was our lives. And when we read this, we recognize that Jesus did not save us in proportion with our ability to be good. He saved us in proportion with the measure of the riches of God's grace. Amen? Man, what a great message. We can go up to any person on the street, any person, no matter how presumably unlovable they are, and say the riches of his grace can cover your depravity. The riches of his grace can cover your lostness. The riches of his grace call you. They beckon you and they say, come. Probably don't want to sound it just like that at Walmart. Be awkward. Be awkward. Don't be awkward. We had this redemption through his blood. Jesus, living in perfection, perfectly man, perfectly God, shed his blood for you on a cross. 
his blood poured out, and God the Father calls you to come to accept that sacrifice, to receive the forgiveness of your trespasses. We have an inheritance in Jesus, verse 11, and then we see in verse 13 the sealing power of the Holy Spirit. We read through verse 4 all the way through verse 13, and it gives this decided message. You cannot lose what was given to you by God. God has purposed it. God has predetermined it. Jesus graciously extends it through his death. And then in verse 13, it tells us that what we have heard, which is the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, what we have believed, we were sealed. You heard, you believed, you were sealed. You didn't seal yourself. This is a passive thing here. You did not save yourself. There's tremendous freedom in that. If you save yourself, then you can necessarily lose that salvation. But what he writes here is that you did not save yourself. And the capstone, the crowning achievement of the movement of God in salvation, that which he planned, that which he sent the son to sacrifice, is in the sealing power of the Holy Spirit. He went in and he sealed you for salvation. Amen? Amen? This is good news for us. And we recognize that in observing and looking at the movement of the triune God, full trinity at work in planning and executing and in sealing our salvation, it radically alters the landscape for which we see things. And so we think primarily in terms of our relationships. And we're going to look at relationships in terms of really two points. So really this could have been looked at four points, but, but I chose to link them in three thanks to somebody who told me that I could do them all with the letter R. Relationships, response, wait, no, relationships, reflection, response. This is why I rarely use other people's assistance. I can't remember it. Thank you, though. And so in terms of relationships, let's look at it in terms of the family and in terms of the church. Flip to chapter 5. Flip to chapter 5. Let's look at the family first. When looking out the framework of salvation on the landscape of family... We don't need to be informed that family is under attack. We don't need to be informed that it's hard to live with someone else. Some of you wives, you're like heartily nodding. You're agreeing. You're saying, absolutely, it's hard to live with somebody else. I've got this guy. That's not your husband, so I don't know what you're trying to tell me. And so some of you, like you say, oh, I've got this lady or I've got these kids. They're so rebellious. What can I do to fix them? Nothing. Nothing. You alone can do nothing to fix your children, but the God who saved you, who called you from darkness into light, can radically transform your family. In chapter 5 and verse 18, we get a window into this. Chapter 5 and verse 18, the second half tells us that we are to be filled with the Spirit. It's this idea that in being filled with the Spirit, that you've come to know Jesus, that He's inspirating you, He has filled you with Himself, and in that we walk out the implications of the Christian life. To try and walk out the implications of the Christian life without the infilling of the Spirit would be like me attempting to fly off of this stage. It's not going to happen. Gravity will take over, I will come to a crushing halt, and many of you will laugh riotously. I know you. And so what we recognize is that we need the inspiration of the Spirit in our lives. Be filled with the Spirit, he says there in verse 18 of chapter 5. And then we find out that the last implication of being filled with the Spirit happens in chapter 5 and verse 21. Chapter 5 and verse 21, we get the framework through salvation of understanding the secret to family. Submit, therefore, to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's so simple. Like, it's so simple, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's defeating. It's so simple, right? We, so we go into our homes, we, we relate to our wives as wives, we relate to our husbands as parents, we relate to our children as children, we relate back to our parents, and we think back to 518, be filled with the Spirit. We think to 521, submit to one another for in Christ. We say, why isn't everything perfect? Why can't we walk this out? Why can't we figure this out? Because we are sinful. Because we're sinful. We constantly need a new refreshing, a new refilling of the Spirit to enable us to walk graciously with other people, to enable us to submit to those we disagree with. 
to enable those that disagree with us to submit as well. And so he calls us in the middle of this, this mutual deference towards one another. And he says, Jesus is glorified in this. The way that you respond to Jesus will have great impact for how you respond in the middle of a family. If you don't respond well to submitting to Jesus, your family will self-destruct. If you don't respond well to submitting to Jesus, then neither will your family follow you in that. And the first thing in our list is he turns and he looks at wives in 522. And so he's just come out of this, 518, be filled, 521, submit to one another. 522, wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord. And we spent a week kind of unpacking what that looks like, and I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you have more questions or set up a meeting. I'd be happy to meet with you. But quite simply, he comes into it, and he says, from this place of mutual deference, of mutual submission, wives, this is your prime directive. Submit to your husband willingly. You graciously extend yourself in bold submission to your husband as to the Lord. He relates back the wife's submission, not in treating her husband as the Lord, but he relates it back to her as she would Jesus. The wife's relationship with her husband is only effective in so much as she is submitting to Jesus. She can't fix her marriage by doing everything her husband tells her to do, and that's certainly not what the word submit means here. She must dedicate herself to following Jesus. Turning to husbands, turning to husbands, he starts in, in, in 525, and he says, husbands, love your wives. And look what he says, because husbands were dense. We're just, we're not as perceptive as our wives, and so we need things spelled out a lot more clearly. And so if he says, love your wives, some of you are like, what does that mean? Like, call her when I'm at the dear lease? Does that mean not wake her up when I go fishing early in the morning? Like, Maybe. You should ask her, do you want me to wake you up at four in the morning when I get up to go fishing and ask you politely to make me breakfast? I'm guessing no. I'm guessing no is her answer. If yes is her answer, I also would like breakfast at five. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives. And he pairs it back to the husband's relationship to Jesus. He says, love her as Christ loved the church. He surrendered himself for the church. He gave himself up for her. Husbands, can I tell you today that that you will largely serve as a glass ceiling spiritually for your family. I mean, this is a heavy and hard mantle to carry. I can't tell you how many men I meet that, man, they have absolutely put it off on their wives to be the spiritual leader of their home. Their wives read the Bible to their kids at night. Their wives are making sure that if they're in a Awana's program that they've memorized their verses. And, and their wives are, are really great spiritual women. I mean, they exemplify this Proverbs 31 woman. They're, they wake up and, 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 and they're doing these things. And, and they're just godly, amazing women. But dads, you largely are going to serve as a glass ceiling of spirituality in your home. Your role is being a good steward of that which Jesus has entrusted to you. That which you show to be exceptional. That which you show to be something that's of, of not much importance by virtue of the fact that you don't spend much time doing it, your kids are going to think it's something that doesn't require a whole lot of attention for them. So if you rarely crack the cover of your Bible, if your children rarely hear of you speaking of, you know, of prayer and, and working out how God would have you move, if they rarely see you in church, and when they see you in church, if they see you sleeping, this tells them it's not important. What's important is, is that we talk the right way when other people are listening. What's important is that when the preacher calls the house, dad quits cussing, he quits yelling at mom and me and my brothers and sisters, and he's, oh, oh, brother Matt, it's so good to see you. It's so good to talk to you. What you're teaching your children is that it's more important how people view them than how God sees them. Fathers, you serve as a glass ceiling of spirituality in your homes. The degree to which you dutifully give yourself to full bore pursuing Jesus Christ passionately. It's going to have tremendous import for your children. It could be a tremendous blessing for your wife. Too many of us have saddled our wives with the responsibility of leading our families spiritually. 
That's why when you nod off in church, she's elbowing you. That's why Saturday night she's saying, let's go to bed, let's so we can wake up early. That's why when Wednesdays roll around or for a life group, she says, let's get involved with a life group. And you coward. You don't want to be surrounded closely with other believers in faith in Jesus Christ because you know they will see straight through that thin veneer that you wear. Valerie asked me a couple of weeks ago, she said, why do you feel so much more free to, to be mean to the men? I said, well, I, I am one. And I think they needed it. If you go to a woman's conference and it's all warm fuzzies and you cry and you get built up, you go to a men's conference and you feel like you've been mutilated. Like you cry inwardly so you don't be mocked by others. I'm awful. Smiling, smiling. Fathers, man, we need to dedicate ourselves. We need to love our wives as Christ loved the church. We need to lead our families well. We need to invest ourselves not as part-time Christians, but as people fully given to the occupation of lifting him high. Amen? Amen. Turning turning to children in 6-1. Looking out from this vantage point of salvation. Recognize that children, he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Obey your parents in the Lord. So ultimately a child's behavior in response to their parents is tied to their response to Jesus. If you have non-believing kids, your kids haven't come to faith yet, you continue to model and to call them into this praying and hoping and trusting in God that he will awaken their hearts, that he will call them to salvation, and they will stand just as Luke did and boldly profess, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Children, obey your parents. And then he turns, and he's got this response of of parents. He says fathers here, but we can read in the idea of parents. He says fathers, verse 4. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It is the primary role of the family, of mom and dad, to discipline, to disciple, to raise up their children. If you've abdicated this role, you've given it over to a Christian school, you've given it over to a godly aunt, you've given it over to this church, take it back. It is not ours. It is not your school's. It is not your aunt's, it is not your godly neighbor's responsibility to raise your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. It is yours and it is a precious gift. It's yours and it is a precious gift. If you don't know how to disciple your kids, if you don't know how to raise them in this environment, that's what we're here for. Like We long to teach you how to raise your kids. We long to teach you, to disciple you so you can turn around and say, this is how you love a wife. This is how you love a husband. This is how you obey. This is how you follow well. This is how you submit. We want to show you these things so you can have tremendous success in the home. Turns to this idea of family recognized first century family code extended to slaves and masters. When we went through it as a body, we looked at it in terms of employers and employees. And so he's turning to employees and he said, the good employee will have a certain Christian work ethic. So we spent a week talking about this, but let me quickly say, if you are a Christian, you should be working circles around those around you. Why? Because of your desire to show Jesus as supreme. Not so that he might love you more, but because you recognize the depth that he already does love you. And then he turns there in 6, 9, and he turns to masters, those who actually owned other people, not just those who are managers of them. He says, masters, do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Recognize in this that if God has granted to give you opportunities to speak into other people's lives, to to guard and direct their affairs, to be a manager, that you need to do so as you recognize that the one who has created them in his image and likeness has also created you and there's no partiality. So we make sure that we are graciously extending the gospel even as we lay down directives to those that we are responsible for. Probably the most difficult area, and and, and this just kills me, is in terms of the church, moving from family to church. Church, and I heard somebody refer to it, says it should be the dearest place on earth. 
And for too many, it's the scariest place on earth. It's that place for, for so many of us, we've been stabbed in the back, we've been done wrong, we've been disappointed, we've been let down, we haven't seen them live out the implications of the gospel, and so we've become jaded, we've become judgmental, or maybe we've just become incredibly guarded. So I want us to peer out. Remember, from the lens of salvation, as we peer out, we recognize that the church is nothing without Jesus. In chapter 1 and verse 22, in chapter 1, he said, speaking of the church, he says, all these things have been put underneath Jesus' feet in 22, but that Jesus died to establish the church. What an amazing word. Verse 22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. And we find out in verse 23 that the church is his body. Now he's not talking about a particular church. He's not writing to the church in Ephesus and saying, You alone are his body. He doesn't write to us and say, Ridgecrest, you alone are his body. But the way we feel about the particular church has tremendous impact for the way we feel about the universal church. The ways you act, the ways I act in any local church is communicating something about how I feel about Christ's church. If it's his body. If if, if it's his body, then we have to follow his lead. If it is his body, then we have to treat well others who constitute it as well. Amen? Amen? I don't think you heard me. If we really believe the church is Jesus, Jesus Christ's body, then we have to be incredibly gracious to those others who comprise it as well. Can't hold grudges. We can't seek to exhaust ourselves trying to make church our own way, to make it in our own image, in our own likeness. When we engage in church, we do so to glorify God, to lift him up, to lift him high. We recognize that unity is incredibly important to a body. I feel like I've done nothing but preach about unity since I've come to Ridgecrest. Chapter 4. Chapter 4 says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Friends, he is talking about life in the body. He's describing what life should be like at any church on any given Sunday. There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We find that this group that finds radical unity in the person of Jesus Christ is given gifts. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. God has given you a gift. He gave many of you gifts that I was not given. This is why churches are able to accomplish so much because we recognize that God was incredibly gracious in not bestowing the same singular gift to everyone But a variety of myths, every shade and color was given to us for what purpose? For building up the body. You look at it and you say, well, man, I'm gifted in this way or I've got this particular talent. But I'm not sure how I can leverage that for the kingdom. I'm not sure how I can use that for the kingdom. I'm not even really sure it's important. Some of you have gone through tremendous struggles in your life and you say, I don't even know if, if I can... Be of help, be of assistance to someone. Did it ever occur to you that perhaps God allowed you to endure tremendous difficulties so that you might lift others up? If you take the paper this past week, you saw an article about one of our members who used an incredible tragedy to have tremendous impact, not just here in Greenville, but across the world. God is mapping and shaping out the various avenues and areas of your life for kingdom impact. And this requires your attendance. 
This requires your attendance. It requires your involvement. If you warm a pew once a month, you're not involved. You're not. If you give 50% of your income to this church, never darken its door and don't engage in the life of somebody else, you are not involved. You cannot buy your way out of church involvement. You cannot buy your way out of and absolve yourself from the commitment that Jesus calls you to invest yourself in. He is the head of this church. We are his body. The body moves and follows the leading of the head. Amen? 412, he says that we are to be building up one another, building up the body. The work of the staff is to pour into the body so that they can turn and, and move out and do ministry. It is a tremendous blessing to see people using their gifting. It is a tremendous sadness to see people neglect it. As we look out through the lens of salvation, we recognize that in terms of relationships, the churchgoer, in terms of their family and their church, must view them through salvation. We don't engage correctly in our family and at church so that God would love us more. We engage through those things, recognizing he has already sealed us and taken care of us, adopted us as sons, and he calls us to walk out the implications of that in our families and in our church. Amen? Let's think about terms of reflection. One of the the great lost arts of the Christian is the idea of, of meditating. Not meditating in an Eastern context, which is ridding your mind of all things, but, but meditating in a Christian context, which is filling yourself up with God, focusing on his word, focusing on prayer, asking God, what would you do? What would you move? What would you change in my life? That is Christian meditation. So I believe that the book of Ephesians calls us to some form of, of, of meditating on the goodness that God has displayed in us. So let's go back to our starting point. From the lens of salvation on our own personal journeys, none of us were born saved. We were all born lost, and any of you that have a two-year-old or a three-year-old firmly believes that. Chapter 2 and verse 1, and you were dead. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, verse 3, among whom we all once lived. We were dead. Spiritually, we were necrotic, rotting, stinky, nasty flesh. We were the original walking dead. This is who we were. Some of us have been believers for a long time, or maybe you've just been in church for a long time, and you presume that it is through this cumulative effect of doing good, doing the right thing for long enough, that you have garnered the respect, the forgiveness, and the love of God. It's not for doing the right thing. You were dead. Some of us, our deadness manifested itself in in Pornography usage, some of us, our deadness manifested itself in adultery. Some of us, our deadness manifested itself in just full-bore agnosticism or atheism. This deadness manifests itself in a variety of ways, but we recognize, according to the book of Ephesians, that we were impacted by supernatural, internal, and external influences. That inwardly we cried out for sin, that externally the world around us cried out that we join in it, and then supernaturally we were led around, what it says, by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself, who did not desire for you to move from deadness to life. And as we reflect upon this, we reflect upon it not so that we can beat ourselves up about our past, but we reflect upon it so that we might know how good we have it in Jesus. This is why Paul has this amazing conjunction here in verse 4. He says, but God. In the midst of our deadness, in the midst of our depravity, God came in. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, unmerited favor, you have been saved. What a tremendous blessing. 
And so we reflect, we think back to that time when we were separated from the love of God, and we think about His love coming rushing in and saving us and changing and transferring our state and moving us from darkness into light and radically altering our destination and radically altering our lives. Everything in the Christian's life must be viewed from this vantage point. We don't look back and think, man, when I was dead, I did some stupid stuff. We think from this perspective, now that I'm saved, I recognize not the stupid stuff I did, but the incredible grace of God to carry me, to save me, to change my heart. We were dead, but he has made us alive. Verses 12 and 13 in the same chapter says, Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having what? Having no hope and without God in the world. This was our state. This is the way that we lived. This is the way that we existed. We were apart from God. We were set apart from him. We had no real hope. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. What a tremendous thing for us to reflect on. That God richly loves us. That he gave himself for us. And then I don't know about for you, but for me, verse 22 in chapter 2 is especially just uplifting. It's especially powerful. In him, so in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It doesn't say we are built, but we are being built. This is a tremendous freedom and release for me that when I fly off the handle and I'm angry or I'm tempted towards pride or I'm struggling with whatever it is or things in the family just are struggling or things at work just aren't going the way I want to, just rest in this. God's love for me is not determined in my ability to do the right things and to do them often enough. God's love for me is something ultimately extended to me through the shed blood of his son, and he is still at work in me. Sometimes I just stop and reflect upon that. This is something so good for us that in the middle of struggles, in the middle of temptations, in the middle of just thinking, why can't I get this right? Why can't I get this done? We have this thought and say, God is still at work in me. He's still building us together. He's doing so by the power of his spirit. And some of us really struggle with the idea that God loves us. And so Paul, recognizing our temptation towards self-doubt, gave us these words in chapter 3. He started, starts off in verse 14, and we recognize this is a prayer he has for the church in Ephesus, and by extension, a prayer for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. For this reason, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul is going straight to God, and he's praying for these believers in Ephesus, and we are praying this for ourselves. Verse 18, he's praying that we might, from this position of being rooted and grounded in love, verse 17, that we may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. And the temptation is to read through this and think that lost people need to know that Jesus loves them. They need to know that everybody is not against them. They need to know that, that everybody doesn't hate them, that Christians certainly don't hate them, that while we may disagree with some of their practices, we do not actively hate them. We hate the one who directs them. But he's writing to Christians. Christian, have you ever thought that you need the supernatural power of God to help you understand the depth to which he loves you? Have you ever just stopped and taken that in? I mean, it's one thing for you to go up to a lost person who maybe has never known the love of God and say, friend, God loves you. He sent his son Jesus to die for you. And he calls you to surrender yourself to him, to demonstrate faith in his son who died and rose again in three days and to cry out for him for salvation. It's one thing for that person to say, God loves me. I've told many of you the conversation I had with a telemarketer a number of years ago that when I got her on the phone, actually, no, I was trying to cancel a cell phone contract. I got this lady on the phone, and I said, has anybody ever told you God loves you in, like, deep sobs from the other end? <laughs> and I'm just thinking, what did I say, what did I say, what did I say? She was so moved to know that God would love her, and so it makes perfect sense for this person. 
But for the Christian, some of us still struggle with this concept that God loves you. He's enamored with you. He sees all your bumps, he sees all your bruises, and he sees the shed blood of Jesus Christ to cover all those things, and he looks at you. He considers you to be holy and blameless in Jesus Christ. This isn't a license for sin. This is just a freedom to live to his good pleasure. This isn't a license to do whatever we want, but this is an encouragement that God, who is still working on us, is deeply in love with us in the midst of our trips, stumbles, and falls. Your desire to continue working, your desire to continue struggling alone is evidence of your sure salvation, and that sealed by the Holy Spirit got to learn to reflect on scripture not from a lens of eyes of i wish i had been better before i got saved to this salvation perspective that examines all of our life from the gracious nature and extension of jesus christ to us in the midst of our deadness we recognize that, that scripture doesn't just call on us to reflect to enter into these kind of conclaves of introspection but it calls upon us to respond calls upon us to respond. Look back at chapter 2. Chapter 2 and verse 10. It said this, For we are his workmanship. God has made you. He has created you in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? For good works. God created you to be a workhorse for his kingdom. God created you to be out and to be busy about the things of his kingdom, he has created good works for you. And look at this. This is the care and provision that he exercised in laying out these good works. Good works for you, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The reason God has gifted you is not so that people around you can look and be encouraged by, by how great a thing God can make from such a terrible person. But the reason he has gifted you he has, it's because he has called you. He has laid out good works for you to walk in. Christians should be busy people. Busy, not busy bodies, but we should be busy people seeking to advance the kingdom, seeking to walk out the implications and the realities of those things that God has given us as he has united us in the sacrifice of his son. Paul recognizes that we struggle with this. We struggle with this reminder, and so he calls us, calls us again in chapter 4 and starting at verse 17. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. He goes to describe them. He says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. This is not who you are. The Christian has a strong and secure shelter in the midst of the storms of life. The Christian has a sure rudder that guides them. It's his word, it's the abiding presence of his spirit living in your life, calling you to live a life of allegiance to him. There is a reason that we feel a disconnect when we're completely separated from other brothers and sisters in Christ. There is a reason that we long to hear his word, that we're uplifted by the hearing of it. It's because that is the way he has designed us no longer live that way chapter 4 and verse 32 tells us that we are to be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another this is a hard thing for us to hear as a people who largely want to see the guilty punished and want to see people have to earn back our forgiveness earn back their place in our lives. But he goes and he says, be kind to one another. Not passive kindness. He's not talking about politeness, where when you see a woman coming in through the door, you don't slam it in her face, but you open it. That is politeness. Some of you, that, th those are manners. That's the way that you're raised. That's the way you're dead. So you better open that door for your mama. But he's saying, be kind to one another calls on us to invest ourselves in the lives of other people to be kind to them, tender-hearted, 
our hearts aren't hardened towards those around us. And that's difficult, especially when you've been done wrong. When someone has sinned against you, our heart hardens against them. It, it, it's seeking to protect us against them. But what he calls us to in the midst of this is to demonstrate tenderheartedness, a willing readiness to be united with those you disagree with. A willing readiness to be around people who are difficult. He says, forgiving one another. If anyone among you has wronged someone, go to them and ask for their forgiveness. If anyone among you has been wronged by someone, you owe it to this person to go to them and say, you probably don't even know it. You probably don't even know it, but you hurt my feelings a number of years ago. You hurt my feelings yesterday. You said this. You said this about my mother, and man, you don't even know her. She's a godly woman. Or, you know, whatever thing it is, don't get hung up on grudges. I tell you, I say this as a person who delights in grudges. I did not recognize that I delighted in grudges until my wife pointed it out. Like I put somebody inside the grudge cage in my mind and then just punish them. Punish them by just have nothing to do with them. I insulate myself from this person. I cut them out for all intents and purposes or for those of you, intensive purposes, if you like. This person is dead to me. I want nothing to do with them. It's not something I struggle with. So I read passages like this that say, be kind, be tenderhearted, and I want to militate against it. I want to say, but Paul, uh, Holy Spirit, this is, uh, this is wrong. Like, you don't know these people. They're awful. Paul's saying, really? Like, I'm in prison, and I'm writing this to you in prison, suffering in prison with people who hate me, and you're struggling to forgive. And I say, that pretty much sums it up. Yep. so hard for us. Some of us have just lived with this, this aching break of, of family members, brothers, sisters, parents, children, friends. And so we just say, man, I, I'm just happy to let this deadness stay in there, to, to allow it to continue to linger. What Paul goes to us, he says, forgive one another. Why? Because God in Christ forgave you. God came to you in the person of Jesus Christ in your deadness in following the enemy, in following internal and external influences, completely set apart and dead. He came to you, and he forgave you your sins and your trespasses. He comes to you and he says, would that you would do the same to others. Would that you would follow in the grace and compassion of Jesus Christ, and just as he forgave you, just as God forgave you, so too you would turn to those around you and forgive them. Let's look at two more sections in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 2, and then we'll look at verse 8. And then we'll be done. He says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And what does it mean to imitate God? We find out in verse 2 that it is to walk in love. Forgive one another as Christ forgave you. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God as Christians we don't walk around with steel-toed boots looking to kick and punish those who wrong us, but we walk around looking for those who need the love of Jesus in their lives. We are to walk in love, and then lastly in 5a, he calls us to walk in light. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now the fruit of, the, the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Peering out from beneath the helmet of salvation. Recognize that the landscape of our life is tremendously altered. We look in terms of our relationships, both those both in our family and in our church. We look in terms of those things that God is calling on us to ponder, to think of often, those things he's calling on us to reflect on, his love for us. His gracious extension to dead people, calling them and making them alive. And finally, from this helmet of salvation, this place of security and safety. Not in an effort to buttress it, to support it, but because of its safety and security. He calls you in the midst of your salvation 
to demonstrate, to walk out the implications of your Christian life. The call of Ephesians. Paul writes to a church which really doesn't have a whole lot of internal angst and wranglings going on. And he gives to them this gracious letter that says, God saved you. God has equipped you. And he's calling upon you to reflect upon that and to walk out the implications of your salvation in every area of life that God deems to take you. Would you join me in prayer, praying that God would infuse us with the strength of the Holy Spirit to live out the implications of such a great salvation? That it would cause us to be gracious, that it would cause us to be loving, and that it would cause us to be a people who wholly surrender and submit our lives to doing everything that he calls us to do. Let me pray for us. Got to recognize my own weakness, my own failures. God, my temptation is to think about them, to think on the, I, I wish I'd done that, or I wish I'd done this. But we recognize that you did not, or I recognize you didn't save me in the midst of me having a really good spell and getting things right. You saved me while I was dead. You saved me when I was set apart from you and headed in the wrong direction. And God, that gracious demonstration that you visited upon me in my life pray that you would call all of us into that same experience, God, that you would call those of us who have already surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ to walk out the implications of such a gracious gift given to us. Father, I thank you for your spirit which abides, which seals, which is leading us into understanding which actions are sinful, which actions will uplift you and glorify you. God, help us to be sensitive to the promptings of your spirit in our lives. And Father, we pray for those who have yet to surrender themselves. And they continue to live in their deadness and the darkness. That through the power of your spirit that you would call them into light. That through the power of your spirit that you would prompt their, their conscience to recognition of their inability to save themselves. And that you would call them into full reliance on the saving power of Jesus' blood his atoning death, and the redemption that you afford us in him. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.